Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm here with Dr. Alexander Fatal. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Communications at the University of California at San Diego. We're here to discuss his latest book, Guerrilla Marketing, Counterinsurgency and Capitalism in Colombia, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Welcome to New Books Network and Latin American Studies, Alex. Thank you, Sharika. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I guess we should begin by at least letting our listeners in on the fact that we have known each other for many years now um, during our time as uh, student grantees in Columbia in the early 2000s. And I was super excited to have the opportunity to do this interview with you, just to kind of see the arc of um, where you began doing research in Columbia to how you um, have now completed this project with Guerrilla Marketing. I thought it might be interesting for the listeners to get a sense of your your background, your professional background, your intellectual background. How did you become interested in media, media studies, and, and Columbia in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, it all comes back to that Fulbright grant. And so for the, the listeners, uh, Sharik and I, we were part of a cohort of about uh, six uh, U.S. scholars who went to Columbia in 2001, 2002. And um, that was my first introduction to the country. I had just graduated from my undergraduate studies. I did an interdisciplinary disciplinary major called Comparative Area Studies. And um, there I was looking at a lot of Latin American literature. I was taking courses at Duke Center for Documentary Studies, which had a big influence on me in terms of turning me on to photography. Um, but I had only done a semester abroad in Chile. I had not had uh, a lot of experience in Latin America before that year in Bogota. And uh, as I'm sure you remember, that was a, a kind of significant year to be there. It was uh, the end of, of a peace process. Uh, there was a peace process between 1999 and 2002 known as El Caguan. And so uh, we were there as that was kind of falling apart and uh, Uribe was getting elected and it was... Um, a kind of tumultuous time in the country. The war was was at full boil. And um, despite the fact that I didn't have a lot of professional experience, I was just a, a young man who was 22, 23, um, I could sense the importance of uh, media and propaganda in the conflict. And so I, I really got, got interested in that. And um, I started teaching photography, teaching photography to kids who have uh, the most, the majority of which had been displaced by the armed conflict uh, at about that time. People who had been uh, coming from all different corners of of Colombia, which of course is a geographic, geographically very uh, diverse country. I mean, you have the Atlantic Ocean, you have the Pacific Ocean, you have three branches of the Andes, the Amazon. 
the plains going out to Venezuela, it's a desertic peninsula up in the northeast. So um, it was uh, a real eye-opening experience for me. Some of our listeners probably think of Colombia, particularly those who are not specialists um, in Colombia's uh, culture, politics, or history, are probably familiar mostly with the media interpretation of the drug, you know, war, uh, narco-trafficking, particularly with the um, popularity of the Netflix series on Pablo Escobar, Narcos. But perhaps you could um, provide a little bit of a summary as to Colombia's other history that has shaped its contemporary reality, that of um, armed resistance and armed groups um, battling the Colombian state. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long history, and I, I feel somewhat daunted speaking to a historian. But, um, you know, I, mean, I think in, in broad slices, you have a kind of longer history of kind of partisan conflict in Colombia. You know, that goes back to the mid-19th century, questions of uh, liberals and conservatives who would uh, periodically have it out uh, with each other. Um, and then you have the kind of beginning of the Cold War after World War II. And the two, you know, larger historical phenomenon begin to kind of map onto each other uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And in 1964, we see the emergence of these two guerrilla groups that um, are kind of still around today. <laughs> we can get to that later, but the, the ELN and the FARC. Um, and so at that point, uh, one of the, the major frames is uh, the Cold War in Latin America. Uh, of course, the Cuban Revolution happens in, in 1959. And um, the, the, civil, the Civil War in Colombia, you know, grows gradually through the 60s and 70s. Uh, you get new new entrants to the war. There was a kind of second wave of Latin American guerrilla groups in Colombia uh, that would be represented by the M19. This tended to be guerrilla groups that were more, more urban. Um, and then, you know, the emergence of uh, drugs in the late 70s and 80s uh, really begins to uh, affect Colombia and the dynamics of the conflict. There's another great book that's out recently, uh, which is called Marijuana Boom by uh, Lina Brito. And she goes gets into the historical dynamics about the, the kind of marijuana boom in, in the northern part of the country that um, really was a, a precursor for the kind of cocaine boom that would happen a, a short decade later. So um, it's, it's a long history. In the book, I talk about not the the Colombian conflict, but rather the Colombian conflicts and how there's this kind of mutating assemblage of conflicts that are constantly um, kind of remaking one another. There's a kind of shifting cast of of actors, uh, armed actors. Uh, they tend to be non-state actors um, that are all vying for, for power, some of which might be trying to overthrow the government, others might be trying to control a certain territory. So it it can get quite kaleidoscopic pretty quickly, um, but in in the beginning of the book, I try to give some, a kind of synthetic overview of these different conflicts and give a sense of how they kind of uh, you know, bleed you know, figuratively as well as uh, literally into each other, right? And how the different actors are kind of 
always studying each other and, and why Columbia becomes a, a laboratory for people who are interested in, in studying civil wars because it is, it is so dense, it is so multi-generational. I noticed that you you did quite a, a bit of reflecting on how you came to this project early on. And in part of it, you, you mentioned in your intro when you happened to live at a, a particularly pivotal moment in the peace process um, in ending what is referred to as the civil war in, in Colombia with the El um, Caguan um, talks and the arrival of Uribe um, as president, Alvaro Uribe, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with um, his name. And you decided there's been so much done on Colombia um, in this particular vein that you decided that you wanted to, to study just one aspect and that of the Colombian government's um, efforts um, to implement a demobilization program, which you explained was handled through the Program for Humanitarian Attention to the Demobilizer, or, or POD, um, which is ran by the Colombian Ministry of Defense. And one of the things I thought that could be really interesting to get us into your work is for you to discuss a little bit about what this agency um, was set, seeking out to do and how their efforts to kind of create this demobilization um, program lend itself to what you talk about as brand warfare um, in Colombia. Yeah. So this particular program was kind of one pillar of a, of a kind of policy architecture that the Uribe government sets up uh, shortly after kind of taking office in, in late 2002. And it was a kind of bundle of policies that they called um, Democratic security it was a kind of curious euphemism. Um, it really was um, putting security uh, above democratic concerns in many regards. But um, this particular program uh, was a deserters program. Of course, desertion, defection, these are dynamics that are crucial to any war uh, going back throughout history in any context. Um, but rather than uh, call it a desert, you know, this program, a deserters program, it referred to it as a demobilization program. And it might seem like splitting hairs um, to, to look at the differences between those terms, but I argue that it's, it's quite significant and it's kind of broader, part of a broader trend in these policy policies in the early 2000s that Uribe brings into play. And that really Santos, can, uh, the, the next president, Santos, who would take power in 2010, um, continues in a certain vein, and that is to, to act as if the war is over while it's still ongoing. You know, at the same time that uh, a lot of the funds that were kind of coursing through uh, the, the uh, Colombian uh, national security state from Plan Colombia, which was a, a kind of aid package from Washington, you know, as, as those funds were kind of working their way through the system and they were kind of getting these Black Hawk helicopters and these different forms of military assistance, um, and the, the war effort was really uh, intensifying. At the same time, there were these kind of peacemaking policies that you would expect after the signing of the peace agreement. So it was a very kind of contradictory assemblage of policies. And so they would start uh, what would later become the Center for National Memory. Uh, I think at the time it was called the, the National Center for uh, Reconciliation, CNRR, Center Nacional de Reconciliación y Reparación, Reconciliation and Reparation. So they would, um, you know, 
do kind of a truth commission type thing. And they had a negotiation with the paramil- the National Federation of Paramilitary Groups, and they kind of struck a deal with a, an ally in a way and brought them, tried to bring them into the fold. Um, and there was uh, programs for for victims and funding for people who've uh, been affected by the conflict, the types of things that you would, you would imagine. And historically, at the, you know, especially at the end of the cold war in the late eighties and early nineties were used to kind of transition from a, a civil war to a, a kind of period of national reconciliation. So I'm, I really kind of get into this contradiction, right. And ask, why is it that, desertion is being framed as demobilization because demobilization is what's supposed to happen after uh, you reach a, a peace agreement and then uh, the two sides will take their army, you know, reduce the amount of people in their, their fighting force. And um, which is again, what we saw in Central America um, at the very end of the cold war. And I came to see that marketing was quite influential in this framing and it really framing is so so central to questions of, of propaganda and understanding uh, who who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Of course, in any in any war, there's a rush to kind of reduce the story and kind of control the narrative and frame uh, one side as good guys and one side as bad guys. Um, but certainly, for any civilian who's living in a contested territory, they learn quite quickly that. Um, these kind of Manichaean dichotomies don't really hold up that uh, people who are, who are supposed to be good guys often do bad things and, and vice versa. And that's not necessarily stable over time. So uh, the individual demobilization um, struck me as this really curious program. And in 2006, the government approached a, a really a high-end marketing firm, the same firm that would manage the brands of Mazda and Red Bull in Colombia, similar such companies, mm-hmm. and um, really asked asked this company to make this program, the program for humanitarian attention to the demobilized, uh, essentially an individual desertion program, uh, to make it a brand. Right? That they this this uh, PR firm slash marketing agency, their response to the approach was like, we will, we'll not, we're not going to do a campaign for you because that was the most common request that the a military or state agency will come in and ask, can you do a, this campaign for us? And their position was like, no, we're not going to do a campaign for you because we know you guys in the States and you know, somebody else will get elected. A new general will come, come into power. And the directives will change and that won't enable us to have the kind of consistent messaging um, that we can do over time. And so they said, very well, we'll we'll let you um, make a brand. And so, you know, when we think about marketing and advertising, we tend to think about the, the advertising, the advertisement as a final product, right? The 30 second commercial, uh, the billboard, these are the would have been this kind of iconic, outputs of advertising, especially through the 20th century. Um, but really, there's so much that happens on the back end, and the research is really important. And so what the Ministry of Defense did, it, it opened its its doors in terms of the access 
to the demobilized. And um, whereas previously, uh, demobilized would be you know kept under very strict lock and key in terms of who they could talk to and things like that, they allowed uh, these young uh, marketing researchers to learn about their lives and talk to them about who they are and what their aspirations are and what their motivations are, um, what they project for themselves into the future, how they understand the armed struggle, and doing research um, in a somewhat more instrumental way than social scientists in, in the academy would do. Um, but there was something quasi-sociological or quasi-anthropological in this marketing research. And you know, the takeaway from that research was you kind of can't use the language of uh, terrorism or the kind of uh, knee-jerk uh, language or discursive uh, formation that was used by the state to refer to the FARC, especially after uh, September 11th. There was a, a lot of talk in Colombia to refer to the FARC as narco-terrorists, right, and to try to take advantage of this new language um, to kind of make sure that the FARC was painted as a, a kind of double devil, which was, you know, the, the devil of the Cold War um, for being you know, Marxist communist, the devil of the drug, uh, the war against a uh, war on drugs, and now also the devil of the war on terror, that it was kind of this perfect enemy, right? But this, this language of kind of, that's used to create an enemy um, was not the language that was going to be successful in terms of communicating to people who were still in the FARC's ranks. So their, their approach was, well, we need to speak to them as people. Um, and when you join the FARC, you're asked to forget um, all the affective ties that you've had as, as a young person. Oftentimes people are recruited um, when they're about 15 years old. And so your relationship with your family, you're, you're often told, look, if your family betrays the revolution, you need to be ready to execute your family. There's a kind of psychological preparation um, that you know, your new kin are your comrades, and this kind of camaraderie is um, is supposed to uh, replace your previous effective bonds. But of course, that replacement is never entirely successful. Um, and so, there was a real kind of strategic decision to try to appeal to people's kind of pre-guerrilla uh, effective life, and to say, uh, you know. Another, another life is possible. And that turned out to be the slogan. There is another life. Demobilization is this, the way out. It, it rhymes in Spanish. It says, Hay otra vida, la desmobilización es la salida. And um, they would often uh, do things like uh, campaigns to say, before being a gorilla, you're my son. Uh, here, we, here we are, we're speaking to each other the day after Mother's Day. Um, and what they did was they went around and they went to mothers of guerrilla fighters and they uh, scanned the images from their photo albums and put them into posters. And they did a whole uh, campaign around Christmas time, uh, urging people to return home during Christmas and kind of reignite this kind of family bond that they had. Um, so... And these campaigns took on a very high profile within the government. They uh, won awards at you know, PR competitions around the globe. And uh, it 
not only kind of sent a, a message to the guerrillas who were uh, fighting in the jungles and mountains of Colombia, but it also sent a message to you know urban publics in Colombia or to international audiences uh, that the Colombian military was was a humanitarian actor, uh, something that of course is quite quite contested by the human rights community that's always kind of pointing out uh, every time the, the Colombian government does another uh, human rights scandal. Um, but this was an opportunity to show the kind of benevolence of the institution and the, the kind of soft side of, of the army that was willing to um, kind of pardon even its most bitter enemy. So there was a kind of a lot of work that these campaigns uh, were doing. And while it may appear as though, you know, what the Colombian government was doing under pod is, I mean, it is, you know, inventive, it's it's innovative, it's a different way of um, addressing, as you point out, it's a form of kind of counterinsurgency, which later we'll get into humanitarian counterinsurgency as um, oxymoronic as that may sound. Um, you point out later in your work that this was part of what you call a layered history of brand warfare because essentially Colombia had had earlier manifestations of um, using marketing as, as such as a way to engage in, you know, these kind of multiple um, forms of conflict um, that we see. And I thought you might want to, you know, share with the listeners a little bit about how other Colombian actors have used uh, propaganda, um, you know, to to kind of wage their 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 war, you know, against the state. Um, if we're talking about armed groups or in, in in other capacities. Yeah. So you know, the argument I lay out in chapter one, which is called an archaeology of media spectacle, is that really the state is kind of late to the game in. Um, in developing this kind of brand warfare that we see in the early 2000s. And it was really a kind of reactive, it assumed a reactive position, a defensive position. And that begins to change at the turn of the millennium with uh, advisors coming down from Washington. Really, there's an increasing outsourcing of the propaganda operation. Um, and part of the contracts for Planned Columbia involved this kind of modernization of of the army's propaganda apparatus, and that that involved a lot of training and, and things like that. And part of those trainings were, look, you need to treat uh, the information space as any other space in in the war, and you need to be aggressive, and you need to kind of fight for the high ground, and using all these kind of middle, military metaphors um, to try to change the communicational culture within the armed forces. Um, but my argument is that this is happening uh, largely because, you know, for a few decades now, the Colombian government has, has not been offensive. So I, I go back to the launch of the M19, a guerrilla group I mentioned earlier, um, where they kind of have a big uh, coming out event by uh, stealing Simon Bolivar's sword. Of course, Simon Bolivar is the independence hero of Northern South America. Uh, he is a kind of a, a legendary uh, figure. He's kind of would be akin to the George Washington in the United States. He had many swords, but um, one of the swords that was in Colombia was at a museum that was actually at the foot of Los Andes uh, uh, University, uh, where many of the Fulbright scholars uh, studied. And uh, there, it was one of his homes. It's called La Quinta de Bolivar. 
And uh, these guerrillas uh, came in as it was closing one night, stole the sword and, and left uh, a, a communique and, you know, public, you know, directed the press to read the communique, which was this kind of poetically worded uh, document that says, you know, Simon Bolivar's sword breaks through the cobwebs of the museum and now points its tip at foreigners and elites and, you know, a whole revolutionary discourse. Um, and they had what they would describe as armed propaganda, which was essentially, um, you know, privileging the political message over the military impact. So they had a, a, high, a series of kind of very high-profile events, some of which uh, went well for them, others not so well. Uh, the last major one was their attempt, well, their their overtaking of the of the Supreme Court in Colombia, which ended very badly, of course, with the Colombian government sending in tanks. But um, they they were seeing that as a as a propaganda. Uh, effort to hold uh, the government at the time accountable uh, for promises it had made during a, a peace accord that was signed in 1984. So, you know, the M-19 was quite quite media savvy, and um, I think it, it led a lot of the other armed actors to pay attention, not least of which were uh, the likes of Pablo Escobar. So when Pablo Escobar is facing extradition to the United States, he kind of bands together with a bunch of his associates, and he creates a group called the Extraditables, and he treats this group, the Extraditables, as a brand, and he kind of pairs it with this uh, very spectacular violence that he would level against uh, institutions and journalists and uh, make sure that he, and not only through this horrific violence, but also through uh, kind of very concerted and strategic messaging, uh, manages to really guide public debate around the question of extradition and how that was playing into a constitutional assembly in, in the early 1990s. And then, you know, I, I go on to say, well, whereas the FARC tried to absorb some of these lessons and it took up the language of Bolivar like uh, the M19 had and it kidnapped high-profile people like Escobar had, they didn't have the same kind of media media savvy and their focus on kidnapping really ended up backfiring and hurting them politically um, as it was you know you know rightfully portrayed as as a very inhumane and regressive tactic and you know whereas they were hoping to be seen as these kind of robin hoods who were um, kind of holding the the rich captive to raise funds for their popular revolution um it was it was really never framed that way at all, and uh, ended up uh, costing them you know a lot of political capital. So that that's the kind of general trajectory of that first chapter. But I think it's it's over the course of those years from the mid seventies to uh, to about two thousand that um, the government kind of uh, gets wise to the fact that it needs to move the propaganda effort to the kind of center of the counterinsurgency uh, strategy. And as you pointed out earlier, I mean, you know, part of their strategy, right, is to um, create these these marketing campaigns that attempt to um, 
expand or capitalize on maybe we might want to say a weakness of these armed groups, perhaps like the FARC or the ELN, the the ways in which they eroded or attempted to erode um, kind of family um, attachment. Um, and thus these campaigns are very emotive. And I thought that you might want to talk maybe to the listeners about one of these um, very successful uh, marketing campaigns by the pod um, during the Christmases of 2010 or 2011, um, in which um, some of their awards kind of rightly point to and their success in terms of media, spectacular, you know, displays of trying to reach the so-called demobilized yeah, the Christmas campaign was, um, it, it garnered the most attention, that's for sure. So it started in 2010, where they lit up a, a Christmas tree in the, in the middle of the jungle. And it said, you know, the, the slogan was, uh, Gorilla, if we could bring Christmas to the jungle, you can celebrate it at home. And again, trying to tap into this this kind of weakness for you know, missing, missing home life and mis- missing those effective bonds. Um, and that really uh, generated all sorts of publicity on the national and international press. And uh, look, the commercials were, were well-produced. And you had these uh, young, young marketing fellows running around with the special forces of Colombia into the Macarena, this kind of FARC territory. Um, and so it had all the, all the pieces of a kind of spectacular success. Um, so you had CNN and Wired magazine and all sorts of outlets saying, you know, Colombian government's new uh, weapon against the FARC Christmas trees. Um, so it's hard to say how many people it uh, actually motivated to leave. Uh, the publicists, of course, in their you know they're doing their own branding as well. This this these campaigns. Um, as Sergio Jaramillo, the, the strategist uh, of of this pod program, really, as he predicted when he approached uh, the firm, which is known as was known as Low SSP three, he says, "Look, we can't pay you as much as your corporate clients, such as Mazda, but um, you know you're you're going to win all of the awards." And he was kind of quite prescient about that. Um, so you know the the publicists managed to get a lot more business <laughs> and, you know, later the UN approached them and all sorts of people approached them. Um, and the exposure probably helped uh, bring the program to the attention of more active guerrilla fighters. But when compared to some of the other programs and the, the intelligence units who would be monitoring these different fronts of the FARC, they really felt um, a different uh, campaign was even more effective, which was a campaign that was structured around soccer. It was called uh, Come Back and Play, or Vuelve a Jugar, in which uh, the Colombian government would do, <laughs> do kind of quirky things like put stickers on soccer balls and throw them <laughs> out of the windows of helicopters. And uh, it was a whole campaign structured around uh, the sense of, you know, if you leave, you can be free to play, play soccer with your friends and kind of have this kind of social connection with people who are not only in the FARC, but you can have this kind of this freedom that you might have felt when you were a kid playing soccer. So then you can kind of relive that, that childhood experience. And uh, that was a campaign that 
different intelligence battalions around the country would start to take up on their own and would end, end up copying the commercials. So the commercial ends up kind of affecting real life, uh, which is something we didn't see in, in the Christmas campaigns, right? I think there was a, a, a kind of division between the kind of imaginary world of public relations and, um, and the real world. So there were about five Christmas campaigns from 2010 to 2014, uh, all around, you know, the subject of Christmas and whatnot. So in 2011, that was the campaign that I witnessed and the president would put little glowing balls in the river, supposedly with messages, uh, to different FARC people who might be down the river. Um, and for me, you know, that was perhaps less effective than the, the Christmas tree in the middle of the jungle. Uh, the 2013 campaign was the one that I mentioned of before being a gorilla, you are my child. They had another one called the star of Bethlehem where anti-aircraft lights were used as uh, ostensible guides to lead uh, gorillas out of the, out of the rural areas and be able to turn themselves into the cities. So, you know, they were quite imaginative and they were, the Christmas campaigns were, were very successful in uh, kind of generating buzz. But as I get in, in, in chapter three, which is where I'm embedded in an intelligence battalion, um, you see that there is a, a, a drive to demobilize very particular girl fighters, you know, high value targets, people who would be leading these different fronts, um, that the, this was really done not by kind of mass publicity uh, operations, but rather through individualized appeals to people who were close to these guerrilla fighters in which they would kind of psychologically profile and track their, uh, their loved ones and try to uh, kind of make an appeal through a sister or a former lover or, or something like that. And so my sense is um, that those kind of more micro-targeted campaigns, if you will, to use the same language as, as marketing. And I think it's certainly interesting, something I point out in the, in the introduction, the kind of marketing and militarism uh, often share a kind of language uh, such as such as targeting, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I started out this research by really focusing on the glitz and the glamour of these uh, marketing campaigns, but then was intrigued by everything that was happening uh, with the military intelligence side of it and how these, this kind of highly classified and highly publicized parts of the program were kind of two sides of the same coin. And that's why I've uh, juxtaposed these two chapters, one about Operation Christmas in which I'm doing a kind of embedded ethnography in the production of uh, the 2011 Christmas campaign. And uh, chapter four, which is called Operation Genuine, which was an operation that the military used to um, uh, demobilize this commander. Um, it was it was really uh, an interesting operation because he was uh, the military intelligence unit was trying to get him and hopefully his entire uh, group of about fifteen rebels that were in Colombia. They had crossed the border from their uh, base in Venezuela. And um, this guy was traveling with 15 guerrillas and the intelligence unit wanted to get them to demobilize, but uh, the commanding general ultimately decided to bomb. And um, 
the guy survived and at that point turned himself in. So, you know, one of the, uh, one of the lines that the military liked to repeat was that uh, demobilized were more, even more valuable than uh, killing somebody in combat because you, uh, you leave a huge question mark. And when I interviewed the national security advisor uh, for the Santos administration, that's what is essentially what he said. He says, look, if you kill somebody, you make people angry. But if you demobilize somebody, you leave a huge question mark and you say, well, you know, where did they go? Why are they there? Why are they there? And why am I here? And um, so despite that, there was a kind of ingrained military culture that still uh, kills were, were more important than, than demobilization. So it was interesting to see, you know, all of these things as they kind of came into contact with each other as demobilization was increasingly moving to the center of the counterinsurgency operation, you know, providing critical human intelligence um, that could corroborate technical intelligence, that could do all sorts of uh, things to help debilitate the FARC. But uh, at the same time, there was this kind of harder kernel of, of just a kind of ingrained military culture. I think it bears um, some discussion about how you, as an anthropologist, our listeners may not be aware you're, you're an anthropologist, how were you able to uh, gain the access um, to the people that you would need to gain access to do this ethnography? Um, you're talking about um, high-level officials in the military, um, civilian institute, um, civilian um, individuals in the military, marketing, um, you know, high-end luxury marketing brands. You're traveling, um, you know, to peace talk sites uh, in Cuba. You're, you're having to track down um, former guerrillas. Maybe they're in Sweden or other parts of Europe. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to gain access to what um, many might assume would have been really difficult and also the, the challenges that you faced as they try to figure out, um, you know, what you really were there for. Were you there for academic, you know, research or, or did you have some other nefarious reason um, for tra tracing and tracking them? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I, it's a, I asked myself that same question, <laughs> um, but I, <laughs> I guess the best answer is, is time, right? I mean, I had the luxury of, of uh, being a, a PhD student and funding to kind of keep coming back uh, for many summers in a row and then two years straight. And then even after getting the PhD, I would spend you know, six months at a time in Colombia. Um, and so, uh, you know, different people I came into contact with at different times. So during the main research, I really didn't have any contact with, uh, active gorillas. Uh, that would have been a little bit too dicey. Uh, I was real only once the peace, uh, peace agreement was, uh, well advanced, the peace negotiations were well advanced that I, uh, traveled to Cuba and traveled to Southern Colombia and, and met with uh, a series of, of active gorillas. Um, but uh, going back to the Fulbright days in 2001, uh, you might remember uh, a friend and colleague of ours, Abby Steele, who's a political scientist. Absolutely. She, she, uh, she introduced me to somebody at the U.S. Embassy who um, misunderstood um, you know, desplacal or desmobilizado. She does her research on displaced people. I was you know, trying at that point, only trying to do research on demo the demobilization programs that were starting up 
And so uh, I was, mis- she was mistakenly referred to this guy and then she passed me his card and I followed up with him. And then he made a key introduction to uh, a woman by the name of Marcella who features in the book, um, who was really quite instrumental in putting this pod program together. So I got a series of uh, opportune uh, introductions and just kind of followed those uh, to ground and kind of kept going back. And, um, pe- you know, different people would pass me off to different people and I would keep kind of uh, moving around in this labyrinth. And then suddenly I'd find myself in a cul-de-sac and I'd like shoot down and go someplace else. Uh, but yeah, it is certainly, uh, I think if I look at the, from the, you know, I imagine how the pod viewed me, you know, I think they viewed me through the same lens that they view, view a lot of journalists that they come into contact as, you know, another opportunity to kind of generate um, some good PR for the program. I do think, you know, they feel that they're doing something that's that's very good and very important. Uh, in in a way, they're they're not wrong uh, in that getting they're getting people out of the war. Um, but you know, clearly, I was doing something that was going to be more elaborate, more complex, and you know, honestly, more critical than most journalists would do. And so, I think you know, they they kind of see this and they realize this, and they start looking into me, and they're you know, they're concerned I'm not who I say I am, and People say, well, you've talked, you've spoken to too many people. Um, so that, you know, the, the relationships ebbed and flowed over time. Um, but, you know, ultimately time was, you know, my best ally. And, you know, I felt like, you know, I was, I was honest in the way that I framed the project. And I think people uh, came to see that and appreciate that. And my, my hope is the, the read the book, which has been translated into Spanish and, published by the uh, editorial uh, del Rosario, Marcel del Rosario. Um, I feel that, you know, this is uh, perhaps a critical, uh, but uh, honest and truthful account of, of the program. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it was wonderful that you've been able to interweave, but I, I was, I, I was struck by, um, you know, the reality of, of the circumstances of, Columbia, and that what you were, you know, investigating is something that's very sensitive. It, it's multiple actors. Um, you know, it's one that requires a level of sensitivity, dedication, but also a healthy um, fear, <laughs> if necessary, just because of the, the the nature of the topic. And it's it's been wonderful to to see you handle that component as well in in the book. You you do address that, and I thought that was worth. Um, discussing. I wanted to get to a part of your book that we haven't really touched on fully, and and that's the capitalist. Um, I mean, part of it's the marketing, which is capitalist oriented, but even some of the nature of the involvement or the involving nature of the marketing scheme of how um, they they're presenting a sense of peace, how they're presenting freedom um, to these demobilized um, actors. Um, could you talk a little bit about the ways in which um, the marketing campaign sought to kind of um, make freedom and um, peace kind of a consumer product? Mm. Sure. I, and this is, this is fascinating and there's a kind of long history to this. Uh, if we look at the U S and um, I hope we will we'll spend a little time to talk about the kind of interesting relationship that this program and Colombia in general plays for kind of 
U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine and, and policymaking around war and peace. But, you know, we could go back to World War I and uh, the Committee for Public Information uh, in the U.S. and, um, you know, really the beginnings of Madison Avenue in New York with a lot of people who, once the war effort was over, were also involved in, in branding the kind of post-World War I piece. Um, but, yeah, there is a, a, a shift when the peace uh, negotiations are in an advanced stage in, you know, peace negotiations in Colombia, Havana negotiations at least start in 2012 and they run to late 2016. And so, you know, after the Uribe years of 2002 to 2010, um, where the narrative was very successfully generated that, you know, the cure for all of Colombia's ills, including, you know, devastating inequality, uh, inequality of land distribution, poverty, you know, lack of development in the rural areas, you know, all of those things were kind of bracketed out and to say, look, the, the, the root cause of all of our problems is the existence of the FARC. So the FARC was turned into public enemies, one, two, three, four, five, you know, upward to however you want to count. And, um, you know, suddenly the Santos administration uh, had to kind of begin to flip that script and um, present peace as an opportunity for uh, development. I think one of its slogans was uh, prosperity for all. And so there was a sense that um, peace needed to be presented as um, something that was a possible in a country that was you know, so uh, ravaged by by this conflict for so many generations, and you know, be familiar. Um, I think there's a kind of certain familiarity to the kind of marketing messages. So, um, you know, we could see a, a magazine like Soho, which would be a kind of an equivalent to Playboy, uh, running a front page um, uh, article and spread in which a a gorilla, a female gorilla, and a female uh, de- you know, detective that was in charge of hunting gorillas uh, pose naked and are interviewed by the ideological opposite journalist. And there's this whole kind of uh, performative thing in which uh, peace is, is not really discussed is in terms of addressing the structural uh, challenges that, you know, were addressed in this 310-page peace accord that was signed in 2016. Um, but we're kind of left out of the, the popular discussion. So I think, you know, looking back on the Havana negotiations, I think there was just a kind of disjuncture between the, the discussions that were happening at the negotiating table and uh, the kind of broader public conversation. And I think everybody kind of realized that towards the end of the negotiations, but it was a kind of little bit too late to kind of reverse course. Towards the end of your book, you, you kind of, you have this discussion of how uh, the Colombian government in the success, or at least their, their marketing success, they, if you will. And then obviously by 2016, um, the, the kind of success of, you know, the official ending of the, of the conflict, they are presenting themselves as a model for kind of a post-conflict nation. You mentioned that it's a country that people often, you know, return to, to understand these types of evolving civil wars. Um, Perhaps you might kind of 
end a little bit of the discussion about your book in particular surrounding kind of what model could Colombia offer to the United States, for example, its longtime ally and partner, or to other countries um, with kind of long stem civil wars? Yeah, I mean, I guess my first comment would be um, to be a bit cautious about using Colombia, or really almost any country as a, a template for any other country. I mean, I know this is common. Uh, and this might be my, the anthropologist to me talking um has a somewhat allergic reaction to kind of to comparative framework but uh, you know i do think each country presents its own kind of specificities and um if we look at what's happening in colombia right now unfortunately um it's uh it's an extremely violent moment uh we have uh, far dissident groups we have narco paramilitary groups um we have uh, the ELN that has kind of gained some ground. And, you know, as, as most analysts predicted, you know, all sorts of armed groups would come in and, and fill up, fill the vacuum that the FARC would leave. I think ideally the, the government would come in uh, not only with the military presence, but also uh, with other state institutions and kind of fill that vacuum. But that's uh, not... You know, it's it's beyond what is is pragmatic in the country. So we've seen all sorts of other groups come in, many of which have ties to the drug trafficking, and uh, as they vie for territory, it's been it's been a very violent moment. We've seen a lot of social leaders killed. We've seen a lot of former FARC guerrillas killed. Um, so you know, in the conclusion of the book, I I follow around this. Uh, delegation of an international delegation from people from Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, there was the number two in the high peace council in Afghanistan, uh, who was a former Taliban uh, spokesperson, uh, both in Pakistan and the United Nations, who was on this tour. There was uh, people who were doing, uh, heading reintegration programs in, uh, in Western Iraq uh, on this tour. There were people uh, from Western uh, Africa who were on this tour. There were people from Nepal. There were people um, from Somalia. I mean, it was uh, a real cosmopolitan group who were kind of getting the, the pony show. Um, but, you know, it, it was a very, like, like these marketing campaigns themselves, it was a very rosy depiction of, of what was happening on the ground. Um, and how fraught the reintegration process was. So in chapter four, I get into, you know, the real difficulties of economically reintegrating these former guerrillas and the kind of temptation that remobilizing uh, with a, you know, either a different guerrilla group or a paramilitary structure poses. And so, you know, this, this sense of combatants being recycled uh, and the war continuing is, is unfortunately what we're what we're seeing right now. So I'm not sure Colombia <laughs> presents the best, the best model. Um, but I do think there are, there are lessons to be learned. And I think, you know, one of the lessons to be learned are from, is from Colombia's own history. Uh, if we go back to the 1950s after, you know, the, the partisan violence of the fort of the late forties and early fifties was spiraling, spiring out of control and uh, Rojas Pinilla kind of general from the military was put in charge for about um, four years, he uh, 
he issued a series of amnesties and he had all these ambitious plans to rehabilitate the country and develop the countryside, but they weren't, they weren't feasible. And so I think, you know, with the Havana negotiations, the Colombian government would have, would have done well to uh, have a, have a more reasonable uh, negotiation that people could, uh, could get, get behind in a way that would be uh, more credible. So, you know, I think I'm a I'm a major fan of the Havana Accord. I think it has done important work in um, getting uh, a historical actor uh, to put down their guns. Um, but I'm I'm really concerned about the future of the country. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm skeptical of this this sense that you know Colombia this the brand warfare that the Colombian military was doing it was really kind of nestled into a broader effort uh, that Colombia was doing throughout the 2000s and 2010s and even today to kind of market the country uh, and t- as a place that was ready for tourists was ready for foreign investment I think you remember from our time in 2001 we were as as gringos we were you know, there were relatively few of us uh, I think <laughs> Colombia was was is awaiting like seven Seven million or something uh, foreign tourists uh, last year. So, um, this re-narration of the of the nation, uh, it's important, but it's important that it uh, reflects reality as well. I'm curious to hear if you have any small or large ongoing projects, whether they be um, continuations of your work here in guerrilla marketing. Or new uh, topics elsewhere. Sure. Well, um, you know, I've been working on three long-term projects, and they have all kind of come to fruition uh, as of late. One is guerrilla marketing. The other is a film called Limbo, which is a portrait of a guerrilla fighter that was recorded entirely in the back of a truck that I transformed into a giant camera obscura. So, kind of fairly experimental methodology there. But um, I think it gives a good sense of what many former guerrillas experience in terms of kind of being haunted by their past and kind of being stuck in this state that's kind of not quite military and not quite civilian. And I think it's it's all too germane for the current post-peace uh, accord moment. And uh, another book, which is uh, Shooting Cameras for Peace, and that's a bilingual book, uh, Shooting Cameras for Peace, which is uh, kind of the greatest hits from a 10,000-image archive that came out of this program that I started way back in 2001 called Shooting Cameras for Peace that would go on to be a Colombian nonprofit organization and lasted as such for about 10 years. And so I kind of um, celebrate the students' photography and at the same time, give a kind of critical analysis of the um, of the process and how the process itself was somewhat fraught, and uh, trying to negotiate different people's perspectives and different stakeholders' perspectives in this kind of participatory photography project. So that'll be out with Harvard University Press in about a month. So it's it's got a landing page, um, which I can direct your listeners to, and. Um, in terms of future projects, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the really wonderful photojournalistic work that's being done in the country. When the uh, Havana negotiations started, I think we saw a real rush to publish a lot of work that had been ongoing for a long time. There was a kind of sense of an opening. And so um, I, I have this project that's called Transitional Visions, in which uh, 
I'm researching uh, a lot of the photography and photographic collectives that are are going on. It's a kind of really uh, rich set of representations that kind of get into the complicated uh, realities of of the conflict in a creative way. Um, so that's one project, and you know now I'm living in the San Diego Tijuana uh, border area, and uh, I, I've also helped to start a nonprofit here a long time ago, and so they're doing really interesting work in with the transfronterizo community, in terms of people who are uh, you know maybe work on one side of the border but live on the other and have kind of their lives straddle the border, and to, uh, to kind of give an alternative representation through their own. Uh, Photographic projects and reflections uh, on how they how they see this border, which tends to be portrayed in uh, popular culture as this you know extremely militarized space, uh, to kind of give it a more human dimension. So, there's a few of the projects that I've got lined up, um, but we'll see what else kind of comes up along the way. I look forward to uh, reading your new um, work and also um, viewing your film, uh, your documentary film, Limbo correct? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you again, Alex. Thank you for joining New Books Network in Latin American Studies. Thank you so much, Sharika. You can find a link to Dr. Fatal's latest book, Guerrilla Marketing, Counterinsurgency, and Capitalism in Colombia, um, published by the University of Chicago Press on New Books Network in Latin American Studies. Until next time. <music>